What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. And on today's show, I'm joined by Brenda Elsie, an associate professor of history at Hofstra on Long Island, Shreen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University, and Lindsay Gibbs, the creator of Power Plays, a no-bullshit newsletter about sexism in sport that arrives right in your inbox three days a week. Right at the top of the show, we want to say thank you to our patrons who supported this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign, Make Burn It All Down Possible. We are forever and always grateful. If you'd like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burnitalldown. For as little as $2 per month, you can access exclusives like extra Patreon-only segments and our monthly behind-the-scenes vlog. On today's show, we're going to talk about the International Olympic Committee's most recent efforts to curb political protests at the Olympics. Then Lindsay interviews... Elise LaHue, general manager of the NWSL Sky Blue FC, about how she's turned around the franchise's fortunes, what her week looks like headed into the NWSL draft, and what she learned during her year working at the WNBA. And then we'll talk about the flurry of NWSL news that arrived this week. And of course, we'll cap off today's show by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout outs to women who deserve shout outs, and telling you what is good in our worlds. But first, before we get into all of that, what a week in women's college basketball. On Thursday night alone, six teams ranked in the top 25 loss, including number nine NC State, number 10 Texas A&M, number 11 Florida State, number 17 Maryland, and number 24 Michigan. And then Baylor, ranked sixth at the time, went into stores and they beat UConn, the number one overall team. That win ended the Huskies' 98-game home winning streak. Holy shit. What a wild week. Lindsay, what are you thinking this week about all this upsets? I love it. The more chaotic (laughs) energy, the better. I'm pretty obsessed with everything that's going on with women's college basketball right now. It's just going to be such a fun few months. And I'm really, I think, the biggest surprise to me is how up and down Oregon looks. I mean, they are in the the most difficult conference, so that the Pac-12 is just brutal. So in that way, I understand them having some off nights, but they are just so good. And I so want, you know, I want Sabrina to win her national championship, so I hope they get it together. <laughs> but, you know, it was fun. I mean, I got to say, it's it's just it's just fun (laughs) yeah because like i should say oregon was number two and they lost on friday so they they also lost and then oregon state they're probably going to move into number one i mean they just beat arizona number 18 arizona at arizona also on friday night and i if i I think i'm correct that oregon state and ucla are the only unbeaten teams in division one women's basketball right now which is pac 12 (laughs) it's ridiculous (laughs) yeah amira were you keeping up with it this week 
only slightly now that Lex plays in the Big Ten. I've been mostly watching that um, in the in my oodles of spare time. But yeah, no, I mean, I think this season is really intriguing, even for lay watchers of the game, which is amazing. And there's so much competition and talent, which is what everybody who's always followed women's college ball has known. I think that we shouldn't overlook the fact that when Baylor goes into stores and hands UConn a loss like that, it also works to kind of dispel this idea that UConn, that we know is the myth that, oh, UConn is the only good team because, you know, they haven't won a championship. That, that they, they're not the reigning champs. And that was some of that discussion of should they be number one. But I think for lay people of the game who always like to complain about UConn's dominance or like rest on these myths about the fact that there's like no parity, this season very visibly is debunking any kind of lingering ideas about um, about that in women's college ball. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, right? That we're always hearing that people don't care about women's ball because UConn dominates. So I'm excited for all the people that now will care because <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that domination at all. So that is great news. I just got a great idea for a Power Plays article. So let's just keep going. <laughs> Writing it down. <laughs> Bren, do you want to get in here at all? I mean, I just agree with everything that said, but I guess I had a question for those of you that follow it more closely than I do. Is something going on besides, you know, okay, it dispels myths, but I'm also wondering, is there something substantively going on with scouting or investment or or player mm. distribution that this is sort of reflective of? I have no idea. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, look. It's a little bit of yes and. I mean, obviously, whenever you have a dominant team, I mean, uh, Coach Cheryl Reeve uh, said this. She said, you know, a lot of this has to do with UConn being so great for so long. You know, it other teams had to step up. Other teams had to get better. And, you know, now that there's not like a Brianna Stewart, you know, one <laughs> one player who's just kind of dominating, you're just seeing, I mean, there there is more talent spread out in more places. There are more teams that are able to compete. So yeah, I think that that there is that the whole game is developing in a more robust way. Yeah, and I I mean, I don't know this at all, but like I do wonder if as the profile of the WNBA continues to climb, you hear a lot that like women's college ball is the end of like a lot of like that's a big prestigious moment. That's why everyone goes to Connecticut, right? To have that big moment in their career. As the professional game gets bigger and bigger too, you see the spread of talent. They aren't all having feel like they need to go to Connecticut in order to get that moment too. I don't know if that's true of that's what's happening, but I think there's probably just a ton of things. It's very exciting. We're going to stay on it, of course, as we move towards March. But now let's get into the, the other fun stuff. Okay, Amira, please hmm. tell us what the IOC has been up to. <laughs> sure. So Flame Flares, as you know, I was in Lausanne a few months ago at the IOC headquarters. And you might have seen my stories where you walk up the endless amounts of stairs Overlooking Lake Geneva is the Olympic torch and a, a bronze statue of Pierre uh, de Coubertin. 
If you walk into the Olympic Museum, there's five hanging balls that have the colors of the Olympic rings promoting their ideals of peace and whatever bullshit they decided to etch in stone there. And here's the thing. This is an idealized version of what the Olympics pretends to be or sees itself as. And the problem when you have this kind of unrealistic version of what you're doing as an organization is it lends you to, it leads you to all different moments of hypocrisy. And this week we have a stunning moment that many of us saw coming just because of the way that officials of mega sporting events have been trying to trample dissent. But it has led us to a three-page document from the International Olympic Committee that is banning protests at the Olympic Games, which includes wearing armbands with messaging on it, putting your fist up, taking a knee, banners, many forms of protest that we've seen at the Olympic level in the past, but also recently at various countrywide competitions in the United States, of course, at the Pan Am Games, you had Gwen Berry and Race Imodine put up a uh, fist and take a knee. This is in response to that. But their policy goes even beyond just the field of play. Uh, you cannot, you have to quote unquote stick to sports and not have political, re- religious, or ethnic demonstrations, not just in the field of play, but in the Olympic Village, during medal ceremonies. The one area in which they're allowed to continue to be express their voice at all is on social media or during interviews that take place outside of the Olympic Village. Like, it's just so blatantly hypocritical. It's like taking this idea that sports, especially the Olympics, are apolitical is the most laughable thing that I've ever heard in my entire life. In the Olympic Charter, part of their idealized version of themselves says that they, quote, want to play sport at the service of harmonious developments in humankind. They want to promote a peaceful society concerned with the preservation of human dignity. Here's the thing. Almost immediately, (laughs) it became political because, of course, it's political, like it's it's an entire international competition that has been created and sustained by people using it to drive their own politics, whether that means refusing to show up to the games, like when we boycotted the Soviet games in 80 or when the Soviets refused to come to L.A. in 84. That's political, whether it's the Olympic Committee refusing to invite Japan and Germany to the games following World War Two or Remember that time when they didn't want to invite Israel because the Middle Eastern countries said that they would boycott? And so they conveniently said, oh, well, the paperwork that you put in in February called yourself Hebrew Palestine, but now you're going by Israel so that the paperwork doesn't match and you can't come. Like that is all political. When people put their fists up because the Olympic stage is the only place in which they have a voice to confront propaganda in their own country, or they nod after a gymnastics routine, or they put their their arms in the air to talk about genocide on their home front. They're using the only space they have in many times to be recognized. 
how when people are slaughtered in their beds at the Olympic Games, we can't pretend that this event isn't political. And all this is doing is trampling dissent in a way that works for the Olympic corporate sponsors, works for them to promote an idyllic image, but it cuts off, it stifles at the throat the very voices of athletes themselves who often are using it to advance human dignity, right? And fans who are holding up signs to say, hey, let women into Iranian stadiums. Like this is this has been a platform for people who don't have voices in many other places. And this is not crippling the political voice of Olympic sponsors. It's certainly not doing anything to <laughs> harm uh, their kind of pursuit of greed and, and corruption, but it is hurting the athletes. I'm sorry that I'm ranting. It's irritating beyond like it, it, I, I can't. I don't have words to properly tell you like how irritating I find the IOC. I don't know how you're feeling about it, but that's yeah. where I'm at. Well, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably have an idea of how <laughs> I did my rant on there when they first published this stuff. I mean, it's infuriating. I read like a good researcher. I read the three page document last night, and I was just so angry the whole time reading it. And I just want to quote from it just to get a sense of like the language that they're using. So they say, quote, there is a need to respect other athletes and their moment of glory, not to draw attention away from that in any way. With demonstrations on the field of play at the Olympic Village or during the official ceremonies, the dignity of the competition or the ceremony in question is destroyed, destroyed for all the athletes concerned. When an individual makes their grievances, however legitimate, more important than the feelings of their competitors, sorry, and the competition itself, the unity and harmony, as well as the celebration of sport and human accomplishment are diminished. This language is unreal to me. This is how it all ends. In conclusion, these guidelines have been developed with the aim that each and every one of you can enjoy the experience of the Olympic Games without any divisive disruption. And I mean, this is... it. It blows my mind that this is real, that they, I mean, it's so condescending. I mean, people are talking about their lives, right? I mean, the marathoner who threw up the X across his chest to bring attention to genocide in his country. I mean, the next, the next Olympics are going to be in China, for goodness sake, where they're rounding up Muslims and putting them into camps right now. I mean, just the idea that bringing attention to racial injustice is destroying and diminishing and is divisive is, I don't like, what do you even do with this? I feel for these athletes who now have to make this major decision in their life about how they're going to use this platform, which they've worked very hard for when they also are just out there advocating for people's lives. It, it, What's being diminished and destroyed here is is the reality of how the world works. And the IOC, like Amira said, just wants to keep making all their money. And the fact that like this whole thing is based on nationalism, like that alone is so political. Nationalism is so political in every single way. As soon as you divide us up into countries and give us flags and identities that way, it's oh, it's just it's already political. Okay, Brenda, your turn. Yeah, I just to jump off your last point divisive disruption i mean it's a tournament based upon competing nation by nation right (laughs) i know i know so silly you know but the only thing to say is like for me i just thought to myself well a 
great because this is going to get a huge conversation going about how ridiculous this is. And B, there, there isn't really any difference in the policy. Like this was the policy right. anyway. It's the same thing. The IOC punished yeah. any sort of um, expression like this from the get-go. And when they didn't, then the National Olympic Committees did the job for them. So, I mean, I I think it's it's awful and I think it's, you know, typical shitty of the IOC, but I also wasn't, it didn't rock my world in terms of, diff- you know what I mean, in terms of the difference of the policy. The one thing I'll say, though, is that to put it out there like this, I don't understand how they can continue to have observer status at the United Nations. Like, how can what you... Does that, what does that mean? Well, that they have observer status. Well, they've always had observer status. So they get like a seat at the table. Like they. they what? At the United Nations. Yeah. And have for yeah. many, well, many, many years. Well, I have just years. learned something. Now I'm angry. Er. Good. I'm glad I could. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm always good to like make it worse. So for me, like that United Nations thing is a big deal that they're recognized as a like body that is consulted and has a voice there. And how can you do that when you're clearly like suspending any rights of expression? I mean, the United Nations, yeah. you could talk another hypocritical organization. OK, fine. <laughs> OK, fine, fine, fine. But I do think they should have something to say about it. And I, I found that really disturbing. I also don't know, did you all see also the reiteration that they're going to use male pronouns to incorporate women? Yeah. Yes. Meg had a thing about Meg Linehan had a tweet about that, but I didn't see it beyond what Meg had said. Yeah, it's a, it's another beauty, like just <laughs> just to throw out there where they just wanted to say, by the way. Yeah, that's what they're gonna, that they're just, they want us to know that they're gonna use male pronouns when they refer to things like sportsmen. And we just should be cool with that. Like, so just, just like put us all on the, you know, in the know that they're gonna continue to not only squash any legitimate human rights, expression of human rights protest, you know, awareness building. But they are also going to continue like their patriarchal language, and they hope that we can all accept that in advance. So I thought that was amazing. And the other thing is that they also are continuing to strap down on the way athletes can have their own sponsors on display or invoked, which cuts off profitability for individual athletes. But Brenda, I wanted to go back to what you said about what the policy changes. And I actually think there is an important difference in this policy by naming it, is that they put up the three levels of discipline, starting with the IOC. So when the IOC passed it off to their, you know, individual national committees, there's some national committees that aren't as strong or can't, don't enforce in the same way. But when they're putting in that they're the first line of discipline, this is what prevented them before from, say, like, taking Tommy and John's medals. And that's a misconception that their medals were revoked after the medal stand protest in 68, because they actually didn't have the power to go into the Olympic Village and take their medals. And so I, I do think that it is important that the IOC is souping up power in order to say, actually, we're the first line of discipline. And also, your your national IOC and your, your sporting government body all can invoke punishment on you. I think that is actually a significant development, even if none of us were surprised by this. I mean, I hear you, but don't you also think like, 
Okay, so I get that. And I, I could see how that could be a sort of substantive used as a substantive change. But I do think de facto that existed already. Like if like you've been to the archives, like you can see the kind of pressure of Brundage and things like that on National Olympic committees, at least like in the case of South America, like they have basically. Oh, no, of course. But my I think my point is that I think that there's still something to be said about taking something that has happened and like under somebody like Brundage. Okay. But what happens as leadership changes now, this is something that is like institutionalized, I guess is my point. And so like, I, and like, I completely agree with you about the fact that like this puts on paper, something that's been in practice, but I think that we should definitely still pause the fact that like, this is how things become institutionalized while also perpetuating this idea that all these things they labeled are somehow political and what they do is not, despite the fact that like when you're creating a Korean team to go under one flag, that's like literally fucking like the height of politics. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. So yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Okay. Lindsay. Yeah. I mean, every single thing about the Olympics is political. Like let's just talk about the very, you know, we had the No Olympics people on the podcast last year and highlighted them in the best of interviews. And they are, you know, trying to get the Olympics to stop in LA because every single thing the Olympics does in LA is about manipulating political power in order to get what they want at the expense of all the actual people who live in the cities. We've seen the destruction that the Olympics left behind in Rio. You know, we've seen it time and time again, you know, Atlanta, name the place where they come in, they manipulate local laws to sweep up homeless people to to use exceptions to the building codes and the environmental codes to build their stadiums, to sweep up this propaganda, to get all this taxpayer money, get all this local funding to build these massive stadiums and this housing, temporary housing. And then they leave and they leave a wake of destruction and debt in their place. And if you're saying that's not political, then (laughs) then you're wrong. (laughs) Every single thing about that is political. And it's just, you know, like the IOC should be focused on sustainability. The IOC should be focused on ending sex abuse, maybe actually punishing organizations and federations that enable sex abuse. The IOC should be focused on gender equality. There's still a big lack of gender equality within the sports. And instead, the IOC is wielding its power to really sustain white supremacy in this way to squash these protests. And, you know, I just echo what everyone else is saying. It's it's infuriating, as Nancy Armour wrote in a great column for USA Today. It's, it's the height of hypocrisy. And I know it's exactly what we expect from the IOC, but I think it's so important not to be numb to these things and to continue to call them out as they happen, because they're not going to shock us into numbness and into silence just because they're so bad that they've set the bar so low. Yeah, thank you. Shireen. I was actually in a um, panel yesterday here in Vancouver, and Bruce Arthur said something that was really interesting. He said the higher levels you go of sport in terms of federation or whatnot, the more 
political it is, meaning like the highest levels in the world are purely based on power. And that really resonated with me. I was thinking about that. I'm like, that makes a lot of sense to me. So like this even argument that we need to keep sports, it's very much this control piece on dissent. And that's what it's always been for me. And I mean, we know, and we've talked about it on the show, that athlete activism is not a new thing. I mean, Amir's work is exactly that. Like it, it shows us the history of it. And this is something that in addition to control on money and power, how they want to almost whitewash history. And that really disturbs me for different reasons. And I mean, like, I love looking at Jill's work and like we had no Olympics on burn it all down. And I find this is really important because the way that the IOC is still so committed to their corruption and their control is is like really incredible to me. They are so hell bent on making sure that nothing goes awry because of that cash money yo doesn't end up in their pockets. Like it's so powerful and it's really scary at the same time. And like I struggle. I know we've talked about this before on the show. I struggle with the Olympics as another mega event also. Um, in terms of it's one of the only places I can see some types of women's sports. The only time I can see women from Central Asia weightlifting. But at the same time, I hate everything about it. I want to see, so I've never seen such a diverse, you know, series of women in the Paralympics. I love seeing that, having opportunity to see that. I can't see that outside the Olympics and the Paralympics. So I, I, that struggle continues for me, but at the same time, I literally want to burn it all down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to mention very quickly, Harry Bushnell at Yahoo Sports brought up the fact that even with all of this writing that the IOC did and put out, that it's still not clear, like what actually counts as political. And I just want to quote something that he wrote, quote, what if an Australian athlete whose family is devastated by wildfires back home wears wristbands honoring the victims? Surely he would not be punished. But what if that same athlete criticizes politicians for failing to protect the forests and criticizes world leaders for failing to curb climate change? Does that give his wristbands new meaning? Does that then make them political? And I just think that's such an interesting point about like what is actually political and and who's making those decisions. We know it's all these people in power who don't actually care about the things that we care about. So I thought that was a really good point. Amira, you want to bring us home? Yeah. And also, like, and I have to say that they know part of the vaguety, vaguety, is that a word? Vaguety, vaguety, vagueness. <laughs> vaguety. <laughs> it is no, no. It is it is a word okay. now. So part of the vaguety of the um, <laughs> of what is political is to give them the power to define what's political for their own uses. And they also know what the hell's happening. I mean, I would just like to remind people, I don't know if I've said this publicly, but when I was there, you know, the IOC and their like literal goon squad of like enforcers tried to hold me under questioning because they thought I was launching a cyber attack against their archives because they're under constant hacking attempts from Russia and China. So obviously they know that they're not an apolitical space and it's just, it's ridiculous, but I, I return to the fact that the brunt of this policy and the kind of power and control that they're exerting are is borne out by individual athletes. And to that and to end it up, I think we should return to the voice of the athletes. You have people certainly like Megan Rapino who says we will not be silenced. But I want to close this section with Gwen Berry, who was a hammer thrower who put her fist up at the Pan Am Games in the fall, uh, over the summer rather. And when confronted with this, she said it very plainly. She said, quote, this is a form of control. 
we sacrificed for four years, we should be able to say whatever we want for our brand, for our culture, for the people who support us and the country support us. We should not be silenced. This is nothing more than a form of control. Up next, Lindsay's interview with Elise LeHue, the GM of Sky Blue FC. Hello, everyone. I am here with Elise LaHue, the general manager of Sky Blue FC of the National Women's Soccer League. Elise, thank you so much for finally being on Burn It All Down. We've wanted to have you on for quite some time. (laughs) Hey, Lindsay. I'm so stoked to be here finally. So your bio is long and I could read it all out, but I'd rather you talk a little bit about your journey to get here. I know you've been, you were with the Chicago Red Stars for quite some time. And then you actually left to spend some time with the Seattle Storm of the WNBA before coming back to the NWSL. Why did you leave the Chicago Red Stars and what made you want to kind of go over to the WNBA to see what was happening there? Yeah, let's not uh, let's not bore all the listeners this early in the conversation with a full bio, but I can give a you know kind of the quick rundown. I had spent uh, you know eight years with Chicago over two different leagues, and I spent five years as the general manager there, and I, it was a obviously an incredible experience. I'm really proud of what I built in Chicago and the work that I did there. But you know, it just came to a point where I felt like I needed something new for me personally, you know, for my career, but also just from a, a personal standpoint. And I've always been intrigued by the WNBA. And I've always been intrigued by looking at other women's sports leagues and seeing what we can learn from them and what we can take from each other. I think that's something that we don't do enough is looking at the learnings of other leagues. And the WNBA has been around for a really long time. I've always been a fan of the league and some of the things that they've done. So it was always on my radar to consider that as a possibility. So yeah, I left a role as a general manager and and went into a sponsorship manager position with the Storm. They were a team that I've always looked at from the outside. I love that they're an all-female ownership group. It was a a different kind of market. I had always worked in, in larger markets like Chicago and LA. So it intrigued me, the opportunity to work in a somewhat smaller market. And I left it the opportunity to go out there and just spent a year with the storm, learned an absolutely tremendous amount. It was incredible to to work for that ownership group and also for, you know, their president, Alicia Valvanis, was really exciting to work for her as well and to learn from her. So I took as much as I could from from that experience before I ended up, I like to say accidentally came back to the NWSL. <laughs> well, let's get there. So accidentally, I mean, if people have been listening to this podcast, it's no secret. The last time we talked about Sky Blue was not in very positive light. There were a lot of problems going on uh, within the organization. Um, A lot of reports of players being unhappy of um, housing troubles and just general troubles with travel allotments and things of that nature. It got to the point where some of the, I believe two of the first round draft picks last year decided that they, they didn't want to come and play for the team and decided to take other options. As with any decision, there's always a few factors that go into any person's decisions, but it wasn't in a good place. And now where we are is <laughs> Sky Blue is, is up and con- I mean, is one of the teams to watch. And you have pretty much, I don't, I mean, I know you're not going to your own horn too much, but the way you have turned things around there is pretty remarkable. The team's going to be in Red Bull Arena next year. The, mm-hmm. the excitement is 
through the roof. And it seems like what seemed once was a dire situation is now a franchise that looks to me like it could be one of the, in a few years, one of the standard bearers for where this league needs to go. So my first question, first question is just what attracted you to the Sky Blue? You said it was an accidental partnership. So how did that come about? Yeah, you know, I had worked with uh, Sky Blue's former coach, Denise Ruddy, many years ago in Chicago. We had always stayed in touch, and she's somebody that I admire and, you know, consider a friend. So when she came into the head coach role at Sky Blue, that was, we had always stayed in touch. Um, and she had asked about me coming out, and they, they really didn't have a role. And to be fair, you know, I had worked in the league for a long time. So I, I knew some of the challenges of Sky Blue and, you know, some of their previous reputation around the league. So I wouldn't suggest it was necessarily a destination that I was looking for at that point in my career. But I actually ended up coming to Sky Blue in 2018. So I don't think a lot of people know that. I sort of worked behind the scenes. And that was really Denise's doing. I mean, I was really looking at things from a revenue standpoint and working behind the scenes on really more revenue generation means. But basically, a couple weeks after I arrived is when it really blew up in the media what was going on at, at Sky Blue. So I lived through that season, obviously came into the GM role in April of 2019. So I've, I've really only been on the job, you know, as the leader of the org um, since April. And obviously, I've done what I can to push things as quickly as possible forward, because I do believe in this club in this market, I, I believe the New York City, New Jersey market should be one of the preeminent destinations in this league for players in the US and around the world. So I believe we have the opportunity to do that. It'll it'll take us a little time, but I'm really happy with some of the progress we've made thus far. And you know, my partnership with Tammy Murphy, who's the really the managing director as one of the owners, um, she came in around the same time I did um, into a leadership role. And being able to work with her and her understanding my vision for where this wants to go has been crucial in pushing us forward and to do things like playing in Red Bull Arena. Yeah. And so what has been, when you're trying to change the direction of things, how do you even go about that? Like, what what is the first thing? Is it, I know a big thing you did was reestablish trust and connection with the fans, doing a lot of grassroots stuff and reaching out to them. But it seems like you have to do both those smaller um, grassroots level work, as well as the big picture. So how did you kind of prioritize those things? Yeah, I think you uh, hand out free beer. Yeah, <laughs> I, I learned that was a that's a good starting point if you have any troubles. No, I say that jokingly, but I think you answered it. it our biggest goal as as a staff when I sat down with the staff that was here um, when I took over was that we, we we needed to rebuild the trust with fans. They didn't trust this club anymore. Um, they didn't trust us. They didn't trust the people here, and you can't survive. The fans really, you know, they own the team. It's their team. It's the community's team. You know, we're just the conduits that uh, that bring it forth. So that was crucial for us. And what does that mean? For me, it's it's being as transparent as I possibly can as a leader. It's not always easy, but I, I share as much as I can. I, I try to remain as honest as possible. I, I think I'm a straight shooter. You know, I never want to say anything or overpromise something that I don't think I can deliver on. So I think being transparent and honest with the fans about where you're at. And, you know, I, I joked about the free beer, but that all started from a, a place of transparency. We, we realized that, you know, the university had let their liquor license expire and it was something that we weren't <laughs> this prepared This is at Rutgers. For. This is when um, the team yeah. at Rutgers, yeah. Yes, that's correct. So it came out of the blue and it was unfortunately right before our World Cup return game where we were expecting a really big crowd. So oh we, 
Yeah, it was one of those things where I had an option. Do I just suck it up and tell the fans what's going on? Or do we keep quiet and they show up and there's no beer garden? And I just said, there's no way I have to tell everybody. So we just put it out there and went into, uh, you know, repair mode and figured out what we can do. And but that all started from a place of just being honest. And I, I realized you know, fans are really forgiving of you if you, you're honest and transparent with them because the, the fans of, I think, women's sports as a whole, but women's soccer specifically, they are, they're incredible. They're so incredible. And they're, they've been with this league for so long, a lot of these fans, and have followed it through all the ups and downs. They're really forgiving of us as long as we're honest and open with them. So I think that, that for me was my starting place. And what you did is you went shopping and you bought personally a bunch of beer and just brought it to to the arena, right? And just kind of yeah, I can't. Uh, I think for liability reasons, can't publicly say that I did that, but I did maybe take orders of uh, you know what what types of beer people were looking for. So we'll we'll just say gotcha. that. Oh yeah, <laughs> don't want to get you in any trouble. I was just yeah. kidding. <laughs> All good. <laughs> Oh, good. I took orders. So let me let me put it that way. Yeah, I think everything will be okay. <laughs> I'll we'll be forgiven. So we're really both exciting, and I think a little for me as a fan and someone who's trying to kind of uh, watch us from the outside. A little bit of a scary point in the National Women's Soccer League, where they're trying to kind of negotiate its independence from U.S. Soccer, you know, but not complete independence. Can you? Update us on where that relationship stands right now, the relationship between NWSL and U.S. soccer and kind of what has happened this offseason. Yeah, basically, U.S. soccer's oversight as the administrator of the league was expiring. The agreement was coming to an end at the end of 2019. So that was really up for renegotiation. Essentially, what's come of that is that U.S. soccer has agreed to stay in their administrator role for another year, essentially while the, the you know NWSL and them works out the details of what it's going to look like moving forward. So I think all in all, it was a, a good compromise to the situation for where it's at right now. And I think what I've seen from the owners. And I've been around this league and the previous league. So I've been around for a really long time. I actually, I think I'm one of, if not the longest tenured employee in women's pro soccer right now. So I, I'm just a bit of an old hat in all of this. So I've seen a lot of the ups and downs, but I think what I'm seeing right now from the owners is really initiative. And that's where all of the new, the changes and, and rules around the players have come out recently in terms of raising the salaries and providing more year-round stability for the players. That really came from the owners and and their commitment to this league and pushing NWSL to its 2.0 version. So I think for me personally, I, I have a lot more excitement than fear. There's been a lot of changes. And obviously, we hear a lot about how European leagues are really on the come up right now, and they're offering a lot more money to players. And honestly, the competition is great. Yeah. To see our sport be pushed like this and to be pushed by other countries, I think it's great. I've always been an advocate for doing more for the players and, you know, as much as we can do. And so I think to have that level of competition is really good for women's sports as a whole. I agree. I mean, you can't, you're not going to get anywhere forward unless there's a little push. <laughs> always, yeah. You know, it can only be a good thing. So the draft is coming up and this episode will drop a few days before the draft. Now, 
I know you're dying to tell us who you're going to pick, but I'm guessing you're not going to. If I only knew, to be honest, I would tell you if I knew. (laughs) I know this is going to be a couple days before the draft, and we're talking a little bit before that, but yeah, I I couldn't tell you right this minute. But There's so many trades and stuff happening. It's already been, I mean, I'm already behind on NWSL News, and I've just been away from my my phone for like an hour. So (laughs) Yeah, no, I think I won't be able to talk about it when you uh, drop this episode, but I think probably uh, by the time this has come out, I'm sure Sky Blue will have been involved in a trade or two as well. I love that. Well, what is what does your day look like right now in the lead up to the draft? And I was hoping you could give our listeners a little bit of an inside look of the life of a GM and the preparation that's going into draft day. Yeah, I have a whiteboard that looks like a tornado. And that probably uh, is representative of my brain right now, too, to be totally fair (laughs) with you. You know, we're in a good position as Sky Blue. We've got the number two and number three overall pick, which is exciting. But we also have some assets as, you know, unfortunately, you mentioned earlier, you know, we had a couple picks from last year that didn't end up coming to Sky Blue. So we actually hold their rights. And, you know, those those rights, you know, we're in high high demand. So for us having uh, several assets that we're able to uh, put out in the market. You know, we're a team that obviously, again, I've only been in this GM role less than a year. So I'm moving, moving as quick as I can here. You know, I have dreams of getting this team to the playoff and I don't want it to take three or four years. You know, I want to move now. As I keep saying to people, we're not trying to move up just one spot per year. We went from, you know, last in the league to number eight this past season. You know, I'm not gunning for number seven next year. We, we want to be up there in the mix and be competitive. So so we know we need to make some some big changes and and shake things up a bit. So we're, we're definitely out in the market. But yeah, day to day for me, it's um it's probably my phone being plugged in because it's always dead because I'm <laughs> on it all all the time. I'm, I'm constantly getting calls. I, I think I talk to every other team in the league on pretty much a daily basis right now. Now there's just a lot of movement and, you know, as we've seen a lot of trades uh, going out amongst other teams. So there's a, there's a lot of action right now in the league. So a lot of conversations and every team's a little bit different in terms of who manages their trades. You might have a technical advisor. Some teams it's the head coach, some teams it's an owner. So um, you're talking to a lot of different people on a daily basis. And obviously keeping up with my Freya Coom, my head coach here at Sky Blue. Mm-hmm. She and I are probably talking, I don't know, 10 to 15 times a day. It's constant um, in terms of uh, that communication. So we're also navigating with the allure of Europe um, and them offering quite a bit of money. There's a question as to whether a lot of our college players are going to come into the NWSL or if they're going to forgo a year to go play overseas to go play in France or England, Mm. for example. So you really have to do your homework right now because we don't want to end up in a situation again where we draft a player that really isn't looking to come into the league. So that requires obviously a lot of homework, whether you're talking to their college coaches or most of them have agents already. So having those conversations ongoing. So yeah, leading up to the draft, it's it's a lot of uh, of conversations, a lot of navigating. It's a little bit like a puzzle. You're trying to move one piece and figure out if you can move that for another piece and a lot of ongoing conversations along the way. And then, you know, for me, it, that's only part of my day job. I'm, I'm running the whole front office. So for me, it's it's keeping up with my staff as well. And we launched season tickets not that long ago for, for our first year at Red Bull Arena. And I'm excited to report there. They're going really, really well. We have a big goal this year, but things are going really well on that front. And obviously, I'm in the process of hiring and rounding out our technical staff as well. So yeah, the day-to-day, it looks different every day for me, which is what I love so much about doing this work. But a lot of draft content right now, for sure. Yeah, I can only imagine. How many other female GMs are there in the NWSL right now? 
Yeah, there's there's one. Um, there's one Stephanie, other. There's okay. one other. Stephanie Lee in Utah. Now their their head coach uh, Laura Harvey just recently left for a job at U.S. Soccer, which is uh, fantastic. Great yes. to have her uh, with our national team. But that was currently, as of recording, the only other woman head coach in the league outside of us. So yeah, as it stands right now, Sky Blue is the only one-two punch with a female GM and head coach. Well, I can guarantee you that you will have a lot of uh, Burn It All Down listeners rooting you on uh, this season and at the draft. I will be at the draft, so hopefully I'll have lots of insider info for all of our Burn It All Down listeners there. And Elise, we'll have to have you back again because I have so many other questions, but thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Oh, I love it. No, thanks for having me. And just to, you know, I think I'm pretty transparent out on uh, the interweb. So if anybody wants to to catch me on uh, Twitter or Instagram and ask questions, I, I try to be as responsive as possible. So I, I encourage anybody listening to, to reach out anytime, no matter oh, what the you, question is. You just announced a new event where like adults can get coached by the NWSL play. What is, what is this yes. happening? Yes. Fantasy <laughs> camp. It's like live your dreams as a pro player. We, uh, we're, we're having a camp. Yeah. Coming up, uh, mid January here where anybody 21 and over, we're going to have our, our players just do some coaching. You don't have to uh, have any prior soccer experience. You know, they're, they're skilled. They're going to teach you. And we're super stoked about the response thus far. It's, uh, it's been really good. So I think, you know, I think we're going to run it again. Cause I know a lot of the uh, the reporters like yourself are probably down in Baltimore for the draft and they're going to miss it. And they've told me they're upset that they're going to miss it. So I think we might do another one later and definitely going to put all you reporters through it. All right. I think we should figure out how to do a burn it all down live show around that so we can get all of the co-hosts there. I love it. Uh, although I actually, uh, Shireen and Brenda are so good. I really don't want to be in a camp. Oh, uh, come on. That'll be fun. They're going to take it way more seriously than I will, but that's part of the fun. All right. Let's do it. I'm in. Let's right. do it. Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Lindsay. So Lindsay recorded that interview last Monday, like over a week ago. So then a ton of new stuff happened in NWSL. Brenda, let's get into soccer. Where do you want to start? Um, well, I'm just going to throw out a bunch of stuff because it, it is like it feels like a whirlwind of things happening and see what y'all want to talk about. The NWSL is headed into its eighth season. And this week on January 16th, on Thursday, there will be the college draft, the 2020 college draft. And then the past week, there's been just a number of really high profile trades, movement. It feels like everything's very much in flux. I do want to say I'm so excited because I am going to be there at oh. the draft. and I'm Me just- too, Brenda. Oh, yay. <gasps> Yay! Yay! The things you find out on this show. Um, I'm going to be presenting to the Independent Supporters Council for FAIR on, you know, anti-homophobic and anti-racist work in soccer. So it's really cool. Anyway, I'm excited about it. And that's happening in Baltimore Mm -hmm. this week. But then there's been a bunch of other stuff. So just throwing it out there. And if people want to follow, like, one great place is, of course, Meg Linehan, friend of the show, but also at NWSL media and stephanie yang at thrace on twitter so um an equalizer forever and ever who i believe the quote is will be tweeting about women's soccer after the apocalypse 
Um, (laughs) I think that's Stephanie Yang on the equalizer. So a couple of things. Um, Just breaking is the idea that perhaps the rain is going to hire Farid Benstidi to become the team's new head coach. I burned his behavior towards Lindsay Horan for body shaming on episode 106 of the show. He's coming from the Chinese Women's Super League, and that leads to a whole discussion about how there we are down now to only one woman coach in the NWSL because the Utah Royals coach, Laura Harvey, is going to U.S. soccer. And so there's only, I believe, Sky Blues coach remaining. So there's a whole discussion about coaching changes as well. And, of course, the, another piece of big news is that after a year, the president of NWSL, Amanda Duffy, has resigned to go work with Orlando Pride. Now, that means the job is once again open to Bayad co-hosts, and I encourage <laughs> the NWSL to think really carefully about where it might go with that. But that that was a shocker for me because she was just giving this press conference outlining things of the league in December, and I was all felt like you know, interested or comfortable or whatnot. That was crazy. And then there's trades, so then there's just plain trade talk. <laughs> And for me, I was interested anyway in the Portland Thorns getting the overall 2020 pick from Orlando Pride in exchange for Emily Sonnet, um, the defender from the U.S. women's team, and the rights to Australian Caitlin Ford. So we can talk about other trades that, that you all were interested in. I should just mention, because I do think like like the MLS has had some interesting things, but just that they had their super draft last week, and then the next rounds are coming this week. And at some point on the show, we should probably talk about some interesting issues with like race and inclusion in MLS. But NWSL is more interesting for right now. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Shreen. NWSL is always very more interesting, but I was following the trades because I'm an obvious Portland Thorns stan. I started to get very anxious. Midge Purse was traded, and I was like, what? And obviously, like, that that matters to me as one of the few black players in the league. Like, you know, I love her, and I love her on Portland, and I feel like anyone is stripped and taken away from their family in this beautiful environment and it like really upsets me I also just was really stressed out because like I love Portland just reaffirms how wonderful when people appreciate and respect women's soccer it can be so that just the the tweeting about it was making me really really stressed when they said thank you to Caitlin Ford when they were like Emily Sonnet I'm like are they going to take Tobin Heath like it was a lot for me I was so extra come on I haven't recorded for a long time I need to be extra so I mean there's all those things and then Laura Harvey I was like what drama so like I mean at the same time like I was also catching so many feelings because of like the tragedy in Iran was unfolding at the same time as this was happening and it was like back and forth and all these feelings I'm okay now I just like Tobin Heath is there Christine Sinclair is like as sort of cemented as Providence Park herself so it's just you know there's all these feelings about it obviously I mean I'm very interested in sky blue now in a positive way and Lindsay thank you for doing all the work you've done on that because I feel like you've made me not hate them <laughs> um and that's like that's important and then but I'm, I'm I'm just really 
eyes wide open watching Brenda and how what she's going to say about, you know, the Royals in terms of, sorry, Brenda, did you say that it was Seattle getting the, you know, just sort of keep my eyes wide open about how that's going to pan out? Because anyone who goes after Lindsay Horn, also of the Portland Thorns, is, you know, persona non grata in my books. <laughs> It's great to have Shireen back. Um, so I just want to throw out a question because I don't totally understand all of this stuff. So Amanda Duffy was the president. She's now gone. But they were also looking for a commissioner, correct? Like I just – we were – I remember being confused about the leadership of the NWSL. So I'm sort of wondering like where all that stuff is. But um, Lindsay, what, are you, what were you thinking as this week unfolded? Yeah, I mean I think with the Amanda Duffy, honestly, I think it's a good thing. I think that – while she was a steady hand, I don't know that she was a fearless leader. And I know that's going to sound very more insulting than I mean for it to be. <laughs> but I think that the NWSL is really headed into, it's got this one more bridge year, as you just heard me talk about with Elise LaHue. It's got this one more kind of bridge year with the in, with the U.S. soccer as kind of the main owners, and they're trying to go forward. And I think it needs a really big visionary leader as its commissioner to take it into this next big step. And I don't think that the owners of the NWSL, this has been the reporting that I've seen from people like Caitlin Murray and Meg Linehan. Um, it seems that one of the big deals was just that the owners, Amanda Duffy didn't have the confidence of the owners to be leading her leading the league into this next big step. And it's, you know, it's a, like I said, it's a very important year for the league. It made sense for U.S. soccer to kind of bridge this gap to stay at the helm for one more year. But after that, like the league has to figure out a way to be more independent if it wants to continue to grow. Because the good thing is overseas competition just keeps getting better and better. You know, you're getting more competition from leagues in Europe, from Australia, and that's great news. That means there's pressure on the NWSL to to keep up. So, I think that for me everything I'm hearing is is good. I mean, I'm excited about all of these moves. It's great to have a team like Sky Blue back on the right track. I really hope that the Orlando Pride can kind of step it up because they have so many of the big stars in the league on that team, but have really been floundering. But overall, I think what's the most distressing to me right now is the fact that there are two female general managers and one female head coach, and that's it in this league. And that's, of course, a much bigger topic of conversation. It's one I'm going to be reporting on some this week in Power Plays. Um, and the Utah Royals are still hiring a coach because Laura Harvey, their head coach, just left to go work with the women's national team. Uh, she's going to be their under-20 head coach. But I think that – so there's still possibility there will be a second head coach, but second female head coach. But it's – you know, those are just – those are not statistics that, that are uh, – that, that, that make me happy. <laughs> yeah. Amira. This is all really exciting, but it's times like these that makes me wish like, hey, wouldn't it be great if I like could like turn on my television and have like coverage of this <laughs> week? It's just in the moments in which you see leagues like really making moves. Like on Twitter, you certainly saw everybody on this beat was was so on it and it doesn't translate into any kind of 
hard media coverage on websites or on sports talk shows or whatever. And it just, it's so interesting. And it's, it's in those moments where I get like, like have to beat that drum again, especially going into Olympic year for better and worse, where women's soccer still, still has a platform, the kind of transition of leadership at the top is really something I'm keeping my eye on to think about how they kind of seize these moments. It was so uh, reactive during the World Cup where, you know, it should have been, they should have already had a plan in place. So I'm really interested to see in a moment that looks like all these really interesting moves happening for the league how this translates in terms of leadership. And I think Lindsay's point about power dynamics in the front offices is one to keep an eye on as well. It's a really good point. So yeah, I just, I just wish I could like have a, not have to go down a rabbit hole and search for uh, news about the NWSL. Yeah, that's a good point. Shireen. I just want to draw attention and also piggybacking off what Amira just said. Jonathan Tannenwald is with the Inquirer is really, really good. And I read some stuff about him while this was happening and post trades and stuff like that. So, you know, we've mentioned the obvious, like our faves, Meg Linehan and Steph Yang, but also like there's, it's start. I'm starting to see more stuff about it out there, which makes me really happy because this is going to be, I feel very positive about NWSL. Like this is one of the first years that I've been like, hopefully this won't be as gong show as gong show ish. I mean, what these women come up and they do is incredible considering sometimes how few resources they have. And I just, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really pumped about the season, you know, as, as much as there's so much respect and, you know, progress within the WSL, there's so much work to be done still for these players. And, you know, we see other players going to Europe still. And I, I think that we want to, you know, with, with Sam Kerr leaving and starting for Chelsea and they're, they're tweeting her and she's got picked up in this super luxurious car from the airport. Like, you know, you see all that and it hurts a little bit because you want that here. You want these opportunities for everybody here. And that being said, of course, I always want a domestic league in Canada, which does not exist. But at the same time, the NWSL is critical for that type of development. So I'm really, really looking forward to this year and discussing it with y'all. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment that we like to call the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Lindsay, what are you burning? I am burning ABC 13 Houston's, to be very specific, (laughs) headline, which says, Houston Dash trade J.J. Watt's fiance to Chicago. (laughs) And it's got a photo of Kalia Ohai, J.J. Watt's fiance. I really, really actually thought that we were done just referring to women in headlines by their relationship to men. Like I thought the 2016 Olympics when that was, you know, thrown on everyone's burn pile time and time again had helped put us over that hump. But a apparently not. This is a local Houston affiliate who is tweeting about a Houston Dash player being traded to Chicago, like the only thing that's important about her is who she's engaged to. I got to give JJ Watt, I know Shireen, we don't give cookies, but I do did like his tweet. Uh, It said, uh, the headline is trash. Kalia Ojai, which is her name, by the way, since you didn't even bother to mention it, is incredible entirely in our own, on her own merit and deserves to be treated as such. Be better than this. ABC 13, once J.J. Watt tweeted that, apologized to J.J. Watt. Oh, 
my gosh, stop. <laughs> Not yeah. to Glee High. And they said that they were going to miss being able to cover her. And Steph Yang, our friend, did a good little Google search to see how many times they had actually <laughs> covered her. <laughs> And turns out, not much. So (laughs) I'm burning a couple things here. Burning both referring to women just by their relationship to to a man and burning the lack of coverage overall for women's uh, soccer. And yeah, burn. 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 Okay, so I'm going to go next. Mine is really short. And it's a solidarity burn this week. Madeline Coleman, a senior sports writer at the Daily Tar Heel, the University of North Carolina student paper, she wrote a column this past week wherein she called out sexual harassment in sports media. Coleman is the only female senior sports reporter for the Daily Tar Heel, and she felt compelled to say something after another woman in sports media, Jasmine Fritz, a sports radio host and content producer for the sports shop, tweeted out screenshots of a UNC beat reporter sending her disgusting unsolicited, inappropriate, gross, sexual DMs. They're just so gross. They're so gross. I was showing them to Aaron last night and he was like, I'm sorry, like someone just said this to someone? (laughs) Bless his heart. Fritz and the man who sent her these messages are on the same beat. Like this is her peer and her colleague. So this is one of those things that is both unbelievable And unsurprising, however that works, I feel both of those things all at once. Grown men are a mess. Coleman's piece goes on to chronicle other female sports reporters' experiences with harassment, both from other reporters and from fans. It's a familiar story, and it will never not make me see red. It's especially painful to see someone so young, like Coleman, write, quote, When I stand in a press box, I try to ignore the sexual innuendos and degrading words that sometimes echo around the room, all because of my gender. And like all of us, at some point in this work, Coleman asked, quote, at what point do we stop saying it's not okay and start doing something about it? Seriously, men, at what point? And so standing alongside Coleman and all the female sports reporters who deal with this shit, I am burning sexual harassment today. So burn. 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 All right, Brenda, what are you burning? Well, um, I, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I don't mean to laugh. It's, it's not funny. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just that I feel that it's that broken record feeling where you're like, here I am uh-huh. again. Here I am again. Here we are again. <laughs> I am burning the homophobic behavior that has taken place in the major Brazilian soccer tournament, Copa Sao Paulo de Futebol Junior, which involves under 20 players. And this week, it was a match between Sport Club Recife and Audax SP. And it basically, you know, the P chant that happens when goalkeepers touch the ball in Mexico has spread. And this is particularly spread since 2014. It's not that there wasn't homophobia before, but there's something about that Brazilian World Cup that really like spreads it throughout Latin America and it's become pervasive. And the official at the time, uh, Tiago Scarscati, deserves a big round of applause for stop. I know cookies. He deserves cookies for this one. For stopping the match many times, um, two times officially, because of the constant homophobic chants that were being thrown at the goalkeeper. And I just want to say, 
this could be anywhere. It could be all the time, but I'm extra, extra burning this because they're kids. <laughs> you're, you're chanting that at kids. And it also needs to be taken into the context that um, this is also a week in which in the major Sao Paulo tournament, Another one um, of men, the Club Portuguesa of Sao Paulo racially abused players from CSA, which is a Northeastern team, calling them slaves. Oh, these God. are These are children, and I want to burn the behavior, but also the doubt that it generates in me that if we get rid of all of this shit, this racist, homophobic stuff, that these fans actually won't even continue to love the game, which I don't really care about, quite honestly, but I genuinely question sometimes if part of the passion for soccer, at least in Latin America where I study, isn't based upon being able to express this garbage discriminatory opinion and behavior. So I want to burn all that. Burn. All right, Shreen, what do you want to torch? Y'all know I don't, you know, do the baseball that much. <laughs> so fucking fuck off, Aubrey Huff. Now, for those of you that don't know who Aubrey Huff is, and I'm just going to preface this, this is saying this is not a week for anyone to fuck around with it on for me. It is not a week for this. It's never a time for this, especially this week. Aubrey Huff, for those of you that aren't familiar with his unimportance, ignorance, and racism, is an American former baseball player. I think he played, Amira, correct me if I'm wrong, Tampa, Houston, Detroit some other places maybe because none of the places really wanted him and he was shifted around everywhere that's what i'm gonna assume but you know i'm no i'm no expert but what ended up happening was because of you know the situation unfolding in iran i saw on twitter um jashvina shah also a friend of the show tweeted in horror how he quote tweeted someone that said and this person said and they're you're gonna love this their twitter handle was patriarchy wins they said we should invade iran and take their bitches persian girls are hot af without the headgear and you know and they know how to act right makes you think so then aubrey huff quote tweeted that and said let's get a flight over and kidnap about 10 each we can bring them back here as they fan us feed us grapes amongst other things devil's smiley face in purple. Now, first of all, just for clarification, I just, there's a lot of, of things that I want to say about this. And I'm just not going to surprise you that the first thing I thought of was Persian girls are hot AF with their headgear on also, but that's not what I want to focus on here. What I want to focus on is literally the terror, the inference that sexual slavery and kidnapping is fine and how violent this is and how enraging this is. It's Islamophobic. It promotes imperialistic violence. And I, like, I was furious. So I'd like to burn that. And I, I've made a new resolution for 2020 to, and Lindsay, I appreciate you saying that I don't give cookies. I'm okay to give out graham crackers. So I feel like for you and Brenda, they can have graham crackers because I don't want to be unfeeling and unkind, no, right? And never, I'm growing. Never, this is part. Never. Okay. This is a, this is part of my growth. So, but this, I'm also committed to being very clear in how fucking angry I am. I'm. The world is reeling. Communities, particularly in Canada, all over the world, are reeling with devastation and loss for the airline crash in Iran and all the complications that stem from it and, and where it's come from. This was not a good time for fucking Aubrey Hoff to, sh to come in here and comment. So 
I'm going to burn that, all of it. And while, like I said, some people can have graham crackers, some people are just completely possible and very happily being thrown in multiple times metaphorically into this burn pile. And he is one of them. So burn. 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 All right. Amira, what's on your burn pile? I want to do a preemptive burn, a future burn. I hope I'm wrong about this burn and that it never needs to be done, but I I have no optimism. And that's because what I want to burn is the inevitable use of sports to further U.S. imperialism and fan the flames of war under false uh, ideas of paid patriotism. And we've seen this playbook before. We've seen it happen before, particularly around football. After September 11th, um, that was the season the Patriots won their first Super Bowl. And I don't know who all remembers the quote, you know, we are all patriots or the kind of paid patriotism surrounding the games. But if you don't remember, it featured a halftime show with quotes about war and patriotism. It featured montages about supporting our troops. It featured displays linking fighting a, a war on terror and fighting of avenging the deaths on 9-11 to what was happening on the field. It's a playbook we know was replicated under paid patriotism when the Department of Defense gave millions and millions of dollars to teams to support things like Military Appreciation Night, where teams like the Patriots and the, the Ravens and all these teams pocketed thousands of dollars from government officials to do those heartwarming return home from troops videos and military military appreciation nights that the Department of Defense correctly identified in sporting events, particularly football, as the ideal recruiting ground for new recruits. I think that it is necessary to remind everybody the same six states that are most likely to produce NFL players are the same six states that are most likely to produce soldiers. They're also the same six states that are the worst poverty on the poverty index. That's not a coincidence. This is it's a land of false choices. I saw a tweet that I so believe that if hackers want to take out the U.S. military, they should cancel student loan debt because then there would be nothing for the military to incentivize many of their incoming recruits with. But the way that football is bound in this, I fear is about to be played out as 45 will be present for the national championship game um, Monday in New Orleans as LSU takes on Clemson. I think that this is just the beginning of so many displays at sporting events that are seemingly tied to uh, furthering violence, furthering unjust conflict and war, furthering pain, furthering death, furthering U.S. imperialism and doing it under the banner of gladiator events where you can buy a ticket to military appreciation night and feel like you're doing a part in an effort that is unjust and unfounded. And I hope that I'm not right, but I just want to preemptively burn the way sports are going to be used and tied with nationalism to further promote an image of U.S. imperialism on the home front as we continue to harm abroad. And I, I hate it 
and I, I, I just, I just want to burn it already. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First up, our honorable mentions. Happy birthday to Agnes Coletti, the oldest living Olympic champion who turned 99 this week in Budapest. Coletti has won 10 medals, including five gold, and is also a Holocaust survivor. We wish her a very happy birthday. Hup, hup, hup. The most watched TV broadcast in the Netherlands in 2019 was the Women's World Cup final match between Holland and the USA, a record-breaking audience of 5.48 million tuned in to sport the orange. Congratulations to past BIAD guest, cyclist Aisha McGowan, who wrote the following on a blog post this week, this past week, quote, I'm happy to announce that I've signed on for another year with Live Cycling. According to the contract I signed, I am a professional road cyclist. I did it. I am here. We are thrilled for Aisha. Vanessa Rouse has been hired as the first woman head coach of the women's football section of Club Colo Colo, a top Chilean team. Via San Carlos Club contracted the first trans player, Mara Gomez. She'll be the first to play in a first division women's league tournament in Argentina. Asasat Ashwala was named African Player of the Year for the fourth time. She joins only three other African players in football history to achieve this. 12-year-old table tennis player Ghana Hoda became the first Egyptian and first African player to top the women's single ITTF world rankings. Congratulations to Karolina Pliskova for winning the title at Brisbane, defeating Madison Keys in the final. Shay Sway and Barbara Strakova won in doubles. Congratulations to Serena Williams, who won in Auckland. This is her first title in three years and first since becoming a mom. She's now won titles in four different decades. That's stunning. And she also donated her winnings to victims of the Australia wildfires. Can I get a drum roll, please? Our Badass Woman of the Week is boxer and former Burn It All Down guest Clarissa Shields. On Friday night, Shields defeated Ivana... Habazin and claimed the world title in her third weight class. She got those three titles in just 10 matches, making her the fastest boxer ever to win titles in three weight classes. And this was the first time Habazin went down in her pro career and the first knockdown in Shields' pro career. A stellar night all around for the back-to-back gold medalist. Shields also did this amazing walkout to Beyonce's Who Run the World girls that included choreography. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, just stop right now and go find that thing on Twitter. I've watched it 100 times so far. For all these reasons, Clarissa Shields is once again our Badass Woman of the Week. You can hear Shreen's interview with Shields on episode 36, so go check that out. Okay, what's good with y'all? Lindsay, what is good? Being here with you all. I've had a rough, it's been a rough start to the year. I've been super sick and, and you know, had my wallet stolen at the beginning of the year. Anyways, it's just been, there's just been like one thing after the other, but there's always a new day and that's what's exciting. And yeah, just excited to be here with you all. That's it. Well, we're excited to be here with you. I'm, what's good in my world? I just, can I say my dog again? I said Ralph last week. Yes. <laughs> I just want to say Ralph again. Yeah. He's just been so good for me. He's so friendly and lovely and he just likes hugs. Like Ralph just likes to hug, man. Oh. And I just feel like it's really good for my mental health. And he and I go on long walks every day. And I think 
I didn't realize how much I would miss that part of it when when Bailey passed away in August. So I have really enjoyed taking him on these long walks. I've been transitioning. I'm still reading all the time, reading books, books, but I've been listening to books on tape or God, I'm so old. I just felt like a grandma. Books on tape. Um, I listen to books on tape. Okay. Thank you. I've been listening to audiobooks (laughs) on my super computer phone that I carry around with me. And that's been just, I've enjoyed all of that. That made you sound younger, Jess. (laughs) Thank you. I know. Computer phone. My computer phone. That's good. Uh, Brenda, what's good with you? I got to see Amira at the American Historical Association one one week ago, and we had a great panel. We had two great panels, and that was really exciting. That said, another thing that's good is that that conference is over. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say So I can now focus on new, uh, uh, kind of catching up on all the like backlog from the you know last decade of work that I didn't do before classes start. And as I mentioned earlier, I am really excited to be in Baltimore this week on Thursday, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, hopefully getting to see Lindsay. And I am um, presenting to the Independent Supporters Council for my fair work. So that's pretty cool. And yeah, hearing all of you is really super gratifying and nurturing and whatever those words are about caring and feeling better. Yay. Shireen, I feel like we're really... I feel like Shireen has some things that have been good since we last heard from her. Yeah, I do. And thank you. Uh, I'll try to make this less than 27 minutes. No, my (laughs) what's, no, they're like, oh my gosh, serious. I was overseas. I went to Turkey uh, and then to Pakistan. Turkey was just a layover. I ate a lot of good food. Like I literally ate my way through two different countries and um, I hadn't been back to Pakistan in five years. I went with my parents and my son and I had an absolutely amazing time. Um, just loved being there. Loved seeing my family. Got to reconnect with family haven't seen in a while, and some aren't super active on social media. So it was just lovely. And you know that moment where you hug someone and you don't realize how much you have missed them until you're physically hugging them. And that happened to me numerous times. Um, I just also was incredibly fortunate to travel with my parents. It was my mother's 50th reunion of her medical school graduation. And she and her classmates got together in University of Peshawar Khaibram Medical College. And I live tweeted a little bit of it because I thought it was amazing. Like these people are all in their 70s now. And my mom was one of eight women in a class of 120. And about four or five of those women were back together and they were giggling like schoolgirls. I have this absolutely beautiful photo of my mom and two of her former classmates giggling and gossiping. And we're talking 50 years of gossip that they had to make up for. So that was pretty fun. Another really cool moment was when we went to the actual campus. I found out that my mother was fined 10 rupees back in 67 for wearing a very brightly colored like shirt. You weren't allowed to do that. You had to wear plain colors and your lab coat. But my mother, trying to avoid General Akram, who was the pres- principal, she dove over and lunged over bushes, like basically hurtled over bushes to avoid him and did this like dramatic roll into the garden. Oh but he God. saw her. This explains so much about you, you Shereen. <laughs> This explains yeah. so <laughs> the apple and the, what do they say about the apple and the tree? Yeah. <laughs> so I just I I just found out and I'm sitting there reminiscing and actually eating this amazing like b- what's known as barbecue. It's called Jersey Tikka in Peshawar and just listening to these people reminisce 
it was just that I was so fortunate to be there and saw how happy they are and the way their lives have changed and gone in different directions all over the world. But it was so special to be there. And that was my, my mother's hometown. So that, that was wonderful. So I'm just, and of course that led right into January, which is the most important month in history ever always, because it's my birthday month y'all. And that is very exciting. I'm doing a she's for sports panel with Brittany Donaldson of the Toronto Raptors, Dr. Jen Wetler and Kyle Alexander next Wednesday at Ryerson University. She's for sports. Please sign up. I was also very fortunate. I'm in Vancouver right now, going home later today by the time this airs. But I did see the Canadian men's Olympic team and play this weekend, which was really fun. And then I saw volleyball. Yes. Yeah. Their Olympic qualifiers are in, in. And what was really fun because I got to see them with my best friend, Aaron, who's here visiting as well. And I got to meet Shwayne Vernon Evans, who's like the Canadian absolute like wonderkind in volleyball and got a photo with him. My son who plays volleyball, like Salahuddin was totally like, like he couldn't deal with how great that was. But I got Shrain to write an autograph that said, listen to your mother. Oh, so that was really great. He was lovely. And he's six, nine. So that's like, pretty and he's such a lovely young man beautifully mannered just like such a his mom should be so proud of this 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 young man he's wonderful so that's about then i got puerto rico got to see puerto rico play cuba and i'm going to send y'all some slack photos because y'all need to see that joy (laughs) and that's about it and joy and you know what i'm talking about joy it was a lovely match so that's my what's good and also i just wanted to say i missed you for so, so much. There was work that I did a little bit of stuff when I was away and I just, it kept coming back to you. There was moments that I would think of you all and see you and be like, I need to say this. I need to show this. I just miss you all. And Ralph, so happy to see Ralph <laughs> in the family now. So Awesome. Thank you, Shireen. Amira, what's good yes. with you? Well, um, first I, I want to send all my love to Puerto Rico. The island is still feeling the effects from Maria. It's still reeling and over the past week has been rocked by earthquakes that just keep coming. I'm sorry. <laughs> they just keep coming. <sighs> I'm really sick of the media blackout around this. I'm sick of U.S. imperialism. I'm sick of constantly texting family to see if they're okay. So I, I wanted to start by recognizing that and recognizing that between fires and earthquakes and wars and plane crashes that the world is very much feeling like a very terrible place a lot of days and it's very hard to grasp the joy but I my what's good is family it's friendships it's you all seeing colleagues at AHA I vision boarded I did arts and crafts. It was never has happened before in my life, but that was fun. And it's about grasping the joy and holding on to it for whatever, you know, however long you can and, and, and for all it's worth. So in that spirit, I do have three things that have made me very happy um, and that I'm looking forward to this week. Um, the first is that with Alexis in the Big Ten, it means she has to play Penn State. So she's coming up here to play this Thursday. And I'm really excited about the fact that I don't have to travel to see her play <laughs> and that she's back on the court. And it's been a really long year and I'm just really excited to watch her ball in person. I also want to send a, a shout out to my mentor, Marsha Chatlin, 
who is brilliant and bold. And her book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, just came out. You can read a great review of it in the New York Times. She also has a brilliant interview in Vox about it. The book explores the complicated relationship between McDonald's and civil rights and Black power. She starts with a discussion of the McDonald's and Ferguson during those protests a few years ago and takes us through a history of how McDonald's has been wrapped up in civil rights struggles in the Black community. And the book blows your minds. It takes something that you think you know stuff about or that's always there and really just gives you a powerful unknown history about it that will make you never see a hamburger in the same way. So franchise the book, it's out now. And the last thing that has been my what's good is The the Circle on Netflix, which is a wild show. I saw a tweet that somebody said they watched one episode and all of a sudden they binged the whole thing. And I was like, that's not going to happen. Let me just see what it's about. Let me tell you about my Friday. Oh my gosh, this show is like, it's a cross between like Big Brother and it's like a social media show. It's a reality show and they're, everybody's in an apartment and they only can interact over this like big social media platform that they've built called The Circle. And you can decide to catfish. You can decide to be yourself. It's I, I can't explain it. It doesn't do it justice. Let me just say there's big personalities. There's lots of drama. There's... It's really kind of like black mirror-y. It gets you to think about social media. But it also is just fucking charming. And if you need something to make you feel good, I would go run and watch The Circle. So that's what's good in, in my world. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you all. If you enjoyed this week's show, do me a favor and share it with two people in your life whom you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. If you're interested in Burn It All Down merchandise, pillows, blankets, hoodies, t-shirts, tote bags, those kinds of things, check out our Teespring store. One more thank you to our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash burnitalldown. That's it for Burn It All Down. Until next week, burn on, not out. Oh, damn it, Scooby. Sorry. Sorry, puppy. Scooby!